Are you feeling embodied? What are you embodying that feels great? What is living in your body that you would like to exorcise? Can you identify these embodiments as archetypes or patterns that you've run into more than once? Today, we embody the storyteller, the inquisitor, and the teacher, among many other archetypes that will undoubtedly slip through our words, thoughts, and actions. By now, if you've been listening, you may have identified certain speech and thought patterns that arise in our telling and retelling of stories, as well as times when those patterns are interrupted, making space for new pathways of communicating. Today, we are sharing memories of embodiment through recognition of the archetypes that play out these stories and the patterns that keep them circling through our lives. I'm Sherry Sadoff-Hank, jester, cheerleader, lover. I am Teresa Tobin Macy, teacher, nurturer, healer, and we are Anecdotal Anatomy. Before we dive in, we'd love to remind you to please send us your stories of embodiment. If you hear something that resonates strongly, we want to hear from you. Email us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. We're talking about embodiment, generally speaking, this season. This is what last, the first two episodes were about what is embodiment, just generally trying to give a sense of defining it through our stories. And then the beautiful Corey Finer, she shared her poetry of re-embodiment. And now we're moving into patterns and archetypes, which I think it might be a good time to define what that is. And um, I'm, this comes from a, a website called CelticEmbodiment.com. And they say archetype comes from the ancient Greek and means original pattern from which copies are made. Archetypes are psychic structures, universal patterns, and ancestral memories that are shared by all human beings. They live in the collective unconscious, which in a sense is the psyche of Mother Earth that we are all plugged into. Archetypes influence our thoughts and behaviors and the lens through which we view the world. So I also Googled and it occurred to me while I was doing it that we've replaced the word searched or researched with Googled. (laughs) They've they've become synonyms. (laughs) So in a cursory search, I found a couple of other definitions that really resonated with me. So embodiment, unwinding the stories held within the body. And the reason that this particular one resonated with me was the word unwinding. As a body worker and somebody who focuses on fascia, fascial unwinding on a massage table is something that we teach, that we learn, that sometimes things just organically decide to release themselves from the body. One of my teachers defined fascial unwinding as experiencing an injury or a trauma in reverse. So I looked at that in my mind and thought, ah, it's a spiral. When you have this trauma or this injury, there's a spiraling, you know, I fell down the stairs, I reached for the banister and my arm spiraled in. On one of my unwindings, I had noticed that it was completely trying to externally rotate. So this one term, unwinding, led me right down my fascia (laughs) rabbit hole. It feels like these patterns and archetypes speak directly to science and stories. And they also seem to be inextricably linked. So in the definitions that we've been finding through our Google search, re-Googling, research at Google, uh, they all bring in patterns and archetypes together. Like there's a sense that they they relate to each other. 
And I have noticed even you know, we in the work that we've been doing, we even, I think sometime last season mentioned that the things that we pay attention to, I think Shauna said it, that the things we pay attention to are the things that come into our view more often. And because we're talking and we were preparing for archetypes and patterns, I've noticed so many old patterns resurfacing. Like I, even I had said to you in one of our planning things, and I looked at some of the teasers and I said, oh, Teresa, your voice is so lovely. You look so beautiful. You this, you that. And while all of that was true, what I was speaking to also was I'm not good enough. I don't sound good enough. I look like shit. I am not ready for this. This is, you know, blah, 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 blah. all that inner dialogue that honestly, I haven't felt that pattern since I was in college or even high school, you know, when I was in the plays. And while I always got cast in big roles, I never felt good enough. There was that imposter syndrome. These things are patterns that have, have informed some of the decisions I've made and the ways that I've shown up in the world. And over time, I really feel through my practices, through my yoga, through living in a confident body that I thought I had eradicated all those. And as you like to say, interrupted those patterns. But what seems to have happened is that now that there's this new experience, we're having something that, you know, we're just kind of navigating. We keep talking about all the stuff we're learning. And along the way, those old patterns have begun to arise. It is. I, I've experienced a lot of the same thing. We have been learning, researching, reading so many things about how our body, our holistic body, mind, body, and spirit um, show up in the world. And what is it that we embody? And I'm looking at myself and thinking about some of my own old patterns of maybe not being good enough or being too quiet, not speaking up for myself, feeling traumas and retelling the story over and over and over again, like rewinding, I'm going to age myself the VCR to watch it again and again. <laughs> and writing this into the fabric of my form. That, you know, when I say I write it into the fabric of form, it always reminds me of the, um, of Harry Potter when he's with, what's her name? Mrs. Is it Umbridge? His teacher? I think that's her name. And he's in trouble and she's make uh, his assignment or his punishment, however you look at it, is to write on the board. And I forget the exact phrase he was writing, but with each pencil stroke or chalk stroke he made, it was etched into the back of his hand. And I think of patterns that way. We etch them into this fabric that is us, this fabric of form. Fascia. Fascia. Fascinating. Fascinating. Another, yes, another term for fascia is the fabric of form. It creates our shape. We could take away every system in the body and only have fascia left. And you'd still see the tip of your nose and the top of your ears and the outline of all your cells. Oh, I could go on forever, but. Well, and it's important because we're talking about the body and the patterns and archetypes as we become embodied. And so it's easy, you know, when I'm thinking about these patterns of, you know, compare and despair and the uh, yeah, imposter syndrome and all that, that is very mental. That's part of the thinking process, the patterns that go on in the way I think and feel. And where does that show up in the body? It shows up in, you know, nervous before coming on today. I felt it in my belly you know, nervous before stepping onto the stage or, you know, feeling maybe sometimes my posture. And you'll talk about this too, the postural patterns, you know, that when I'm feeling less than, am I moving into that with exaggeration with shoulders forward and head down? Or am I overcompensating by being too big, by shoulders back and almost too boisterous, like the archetype of the bully almost, you know, which I could embody, you know, this, this work has, you know, Jung uses the archetypes, Joseph Campbell talks about the Jungian archetypes, um, which are very, they're psychological. And if you begin to look at your own patterns and start putting archetypes to the behaviors and the feelings and the way we move in, it, it, it's again, it's like when we notice something, we can work with it. When I notice 
I, um, that I am being too loud or being the, which would I say? I have a whole list of archetypes that I wrote that I felt were mine, like um, the jester. I'm going to digress a little bit here. I've years and years ago, my dear friend Stacy recommended The Mists of Avalon. I think I read it in around 89 or 90, 1989, 1990. And I did not want to come back. This was one of those mental breaks I had while reading a book that I just didn't want to come back. And I started getting into this whole Arthurian thing, like these, the archetypes and the stories of the romances of Tristan and Isolde and all of the you know, things that came from the Arthurian romance legends. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, I'm Russian and Romanian as my lineage. I have, I'm 99.99% Ashkenazi Jew. Like there is no, <laughs> there's no way that that particular region of the world should speak to me so viscerally. Yeah, I do believe in reincarnation though. So maybe from other lives. And I have this, one of my very best friends is a psychic medium. And I had asked her one day, and I try not to over ask her questions because that's not what our friendship is hinged on. But I did ask her one day, why, why Arthur, why me? And she, without missing a beat, she said, you were the court jester. You were not only a court jester, you were the court jester. And I have resonated with the clown slash gesture archetype for a long time. I may not be the funniest person, but I do take a lot of pleasure in laughing, in inspiring laughter, in being, you know, I go for the joke sometimes and, you know, sometimes it's not appropriate, but I'll go for the joke. But there's something about that archetype that really speaks to me. And that seems to be the connector for that particular uh, you know, legend lore that I love. There are others, but I want to give you a chance to speak. <laughs> well, if I was going to look for my archetypes and share what they are, you know, I'm a little bit traditional in them. Mm -hmm. Teacher is definitely one of my archetypes. I just gravitate to it in so many different ways, even if it's you know, when I was playing with my children when they were young, so mother and teacher, they kind of, in my viewpoint, they go hand in hand. I would take them to the park when they got a little bit cranky and <laughs> they needed to burn off some energy. We would go to the park. But then there was a teaching element to it because we would always get food from the petting zoo and walk around and feed all of the animals and at the same time, I would teach them about food, about the animals, um, about caring for other humans and, uh, not, and not through the animals, like caring for other people in the same way that you love and care for the animals. Yeah. But I think archetypes are less my area of expertise than patterns. Mm -hmm. I've studied patterns. And... I, I want to say right here as we're starting that what I'm going to talk about as far as fascia goes is things that I've learned, but it's much more the anecdotal incorporation of how our body functions that I'll probably refer, be referring to. So I'm not staying so close to science that I'm going to say everything I'm going to say is scientific and right, but I found amazing overlaps between how the body functions and heals and using it as a metaphor for how families, communities, and how we can approach universal healing. So I'm just in awe of how this body, the, the, the magnificence of how our body works and its functions. And all of the stories that it holds you know, it is, it is thinking about, you know, if you're, if you're going to write a story, you want to write characters that relate to people that people feel when they're reading or watching on TV or seeing in the movies, or, I mean, I love crappy TV and I love movies and I love anything that, you know, is a good story. I don't care. I'll see anything live musically, even if I don't like it. And I'll take anything, you know, that is a good story. So if you're creating these characters, many years ago, I wanted to write something about sitcoms. 
And I wanted to write about the sitcoms that had longevity, the ones that really transcended generations. Like I look back now and I look at Seinfeld and Friends and Cheers and they are all dated. They are all dated to the decade from which they were produced. And at the same time, the universal themes, like let's just take Cheers for a moment. You had Sam, who was the hero. You had Coach, who was the fool. And when he died, the, the actor, and they brought in Woody, he was the fool too. They, they brought the same archetype in to fill that space. You have the mailman in Cliff, who's, you know, the sort of know-it-all, you know, guy, you've got the bar fly in Norm. I mean, if you were to look online, you can find lists of archetypes that are 12 archetypes or 24 archetypes or 88 archetypes. But arguably, there are an infinite number of archetypes as there are an infinite number of ways that we show up in the world. And so when I think about you know, writers like Shakespeare or Tolkien, who also transcended time with their characters that are still just as relatable today, though I will say as a caveat and as a theater major that Shakespeare was never my jam. Hard for me to understand just reading it. I would never get the imagery and the metaphor, but if someone could read it or if someone could perform it well, then I could get it. But if you break down those characters, they are archetypes that still resonate today. Another one of the definitions that I found for embodiment is the practice of attending to our sensations. And the body speaks in sensation. Fascia is termed a sensory organ or the great communicator. So living life informed by the senses and the experience of the body is something that we've already talked about. But that's going to lead me right into the characters of fascia, the characters of communication, your favorite, the Italian family. I love them. <laughs> These receptors that speak to us, and again, I want to remind you that this is my anecdotal interpretation of taking this and bringing life into it in a way that I can understand. So the great communicator. So we can think of um, receptors, communicators, maybe as reporting stations. They tell us a story. We experience something. And then the receptors start giving us information on how we should move, how we should act, where we are in space. And they, but these receptors, they respond. And as a body worker, understanding what somebody is going to respond to or what I can facilitate within somebody's healing process by understanding who I'm talking to in the body. Who am I communicating with? So we have a couple that I'll share as my characters. And one is the Golgi tendon. You know, I always picture it as, you know, a muscle guy. Like Golgi is strong and, uh, and it, the, how we communicate with Golgi is it loves contraction and active stretching. And when I look at this saying that I've looked at fascia and how the body works and um, how it heals and how it is always in search of homeostasis, of balance. What a great metaphor for healing communities and the collective. So Golgi, contraction, right? When we are in stressful times, we tend to contract. We come inward a little bit. And what is the opposite that Golgi really loves? It's active stretching. And I can bring that into a story and a narrative that says, I need to stretch my mind. I need to stretch my thoughts. I need to be able to look at this situation from different angles and different viewpoints by actively stretching my brain and opening it up. And then I have Pacini. Pacini, I view as a surfer. Before you go on, where do Golgi and Pacini live? Are they in each muscle or is it a specific location in the body? So Golgi's tend to be in the tendon. So it's called okay. the Golgi tendon organ. We're going to say that they all live in different areas of the fascia. Mm -hmm. They're communicators that are abundantly populated. Mm -hmm. And some of the science that I've read is that 
they have a higher presence in more superficial tissues. Okay, because they're communicating with us. And so we have to remember that each one of those muscles, every fiber in that muscle is wrapped in a um, tube of fascia. So muscles and fascia are so intimately integrated that it's hard to separate them and not have one be the other. There's, they're just so close. Um, and actually the whole body is. Every single thing in the body is wrapped in fascia. But Piscini, Piscini loves pressure, but vibration, constant movement, um, which reminds me that vibration, maybe we need to have some practices of song or chanting, right? Adding this vibration into our body or dancing, right? Wouldn't it be great if we started um, having conversations that might be a little bit challenging with a dance and a song of vibration to kind of get us set into, hey, I'm ready to go. And what comes out of talking to Pacini, these vibrations, is an enhanced proprioceptive feedback and motor control, which means it helps us to understand where we are in space. What are we doing and how can we navigate and move through it with grace and glory and ease? What a great way to run a community is to be able to know where we are in space, know where we are on topics, but to move with it with enough openness and active stretching to be able to be flexible and moving from thing to thing, from thought to thought with openness and receptivity. Rafini is coming up next. Rafini, ah. <laughs> Rafini, I always picture as, you know, somebody in a smoking jacket with a big pipe, very refined approach, um, well thought out. And Rafini loves rapid pressure changes, but also sustained pressure but on tangential and angled forces. It likes stretching in all different angles. Again, what a beautiful metaphor. Um, tangential angles of views of what's going on in the world. How do we unite the collective? Um, how do we adapt to sustained pressure? And to notice that sometimes sustained pressure has the effects of reducing our sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight. So gentle body work, sustained pressure at the edges, a yin yoga practice where we find those edges and we introduce this sustained but soft and gentle pressure. It gives us the, the stage that we need for change to sit with it and allow the body the time it needs to calm everything down and to have this change in our sympathetic response. Yes, and I, the change, that is exactly the word that I was hoping you were going to use because the way you have described fascia, and I know you've described it on the show too, is that it forms and deforms according to request without bias. So the fact is that if we are carrying stories of patterned behaviors in our fascial system, we can interrupt those patterns and create change to change our story or to add a chapter that maybe was unexpected that goes in a different direction. And you had also, I think, was it last time we talked and you said, or maybe it was in one of our planning sessions, you said, which came first, the sadness or the posture? So that posture that you might think of immediately when you think of someone who may be depressed or, or very, very sad with shoulders forward, and we might not be able to answer that chicken or egg. We might not know. But what we do know is that when we begin to request a different shape physically, that we can begin to observe what happens to the mood so that we can begin to see those connections. I'm going to move into archetypes because there is one that has resurfaced in my life over my lifetime um, since probably high school uh, that I have never 
I've never, I won't say experienced for myself, but would never have (laughs) called for myself. And that was temptress. That was Jezebel. That was some kind of, and I have to think that whatever the people who were reflecting that back to me were really reflecting their own shadow, you know, whatever it was they wanted or expected or thought I was putting out there. I'm friendly. I can be a little flirtatious, but I've never, I don't think, but I've had, you know, people say, you know, you're Jezebel. No, I didn't know I was Jezebel. Um, One of them said, one day you'll be marriage material, but you will be marriage material. I was like, I'm not sure what that means. And you're my friend's boyfriend. And I don't know how appropriate that is to say to me, but that's an archetype. And that is, you know, was I subconsciously, you know, behaving in a way that, that elicited that kind of response. And if so, what was it that I thought I was going to gain from that? But there's, there's something to work with on that. You know, we can have certain things reflected back to us, but then when, as soon as someone else comes in, there's also the possibility of that reflection being more something that is theirs. You know, for empaths who are always working or sometimes working with trying to figure out, am I feeling my feelings or someone else's feelings? Is this experience mine or is it other? You know, is that reflection mine or is that something that that person is working with? And can we ever really be separate from that which is reflecting? It is really difficult. And it's a new, newer practice um, of mine is really paying attention to reflections, paying attention to shadows. Of course, they've been introduced many times throughout my, throughout my life, throughout yoga. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really looking at it now in a whole whole different light, (laughs) which is kind of a funny term, isn't it? Because we need the light to see our shadow, right? And we also need the darkness for the shadows to have some time to rest and relax and maybe um, become more clear. And I always find the archetypes interesting that other people see that I don't see. So I used teacher as one of my archetypes earlier in the conversation. I never would have labeled myself teacher. I wouldn't have labeled myself healer. I still don't, but many of my clients will say, you're such a healer. Um, But it's their view of me. So maybe it's my discomfort that I'm like, yeah, I'm not a healer. I don't know. That's some shadow work that's still left to get to be done. But I became a professional teacher. Now, I don't have a college degree. Um, So when I was offered the position to teach at the massage school that I graduated with by my teacher, he called me in and said, I need a teacher. Will you come in and talk about it? I reminded him, I said, I'm a massage therapist who was a practice manager in a dental office. I am not a teacher. I, and he said to me, I watched you for a year in class. You have always been a teacher. And I was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. So I did, I went in, I sat with him, I took the job. Honestly, I learned everything I know about body work when I went back to teach it, not to say anything bad about my teachers, but when you ha- when I had to be the teacher and, and embrace that archetype, I learned, I became a student at the exact same time. So two archetypes showed up simultaneously. In order to be a teacher, I had to dive into the student that was inside me. And, and that's, when he recognized it, I had to sit with it and wonder what it was that I was reflecting that he saw that I had not noticed in myself yet. And why have I not noticed it? And as it turned out, you know, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm a really good teacher. (laughs) You are. That's why we're here today. But that is, it's, that's so wonderful. And, you know, when you talk about the shadow and your shadows are also patterns and they are, there are also shadowy archetypes, you know, the villain and the trickster and, you know, the bully and there, we can get into that as well. 
that there's also a golden shadow that my teacher Amy taught us in my 300 hour um, training uh, for yoga. And golden shadow for some is maybe more difficult to even uncover and notice, <coughs> excuse me, than the, the darker shadows. And the way she described the golden shadow, excuse me, is that if you think of someone who you revere beyond words, someone who just, it can be a celebrity, it can be a family member, a friend, someone you've seen, but someone who really moves you, that itemize those qualities about that person that you think are just amazing. And then find them in yourself. Find them in yourself where they may be unhatched, they may be just little seedlings waiting to break soil. They may be unmanifested in some way, but and they may not be the same exact quality, but they embody, we're going to use the word embody, they embody, the, you embody a quality, an essence, something of that golden shadow. And so own it, fucking own it. Own it that you're amazing and you have all of this light. You know, I never, when I taught, um, I never taught shadow work because I'm not a shrink and I don't feel equipped to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. But I did teach golden shadow because I felt that that could be of service to people in a very tangible way when they left the studio that they could leave feeling just a little bit better about themselves or at least acknowledging something that they may that had been unacknowledged before that might bring a smile, a little joy, a little bounce in their step, you know. I didn't think that there was any downside to working with the golden shadow. So, you know, that was, that's a thing. That brought up a whole bunch <laughs> of thoughts for me as well. I had lunch with a friend yesterday and I'm not sure the date of when this is airing, but it's uh, March 5th, 2022. So whenever you listen to this, but the conversation turned to Ukraine. And in that conversation, she began to talk and uh, it was so inspiring. She said, we were talking about shadows. We were talking about reflecting on self. We were talking about self-examination and how we show up in the world. And she said, you know, watching the news and hearing about aggression and, you know, moving forward into war, trying to, you know, take over get other people's property, destroy property. She said, you know, I'm thinking about peace. I'm thinking about, you know, war and peace and all of what comes with conflict and realized that to be peaceful, what lessons could I pull out of this? And she said, so I turned and I looked at myself and said, when do I play the villain? When do I take something that doesn't belong to me? When am I unkind or aggressive? Can I notice this and bring awareness to them? Because perhaps the, and I don't know if she said this part or if I did, but maybe the answer is in turning that mirror around, asking ourselves those questions identifying when we play those other archetypes, because I don't, we met, we're talking about archetypes and patterns, but our life weaves in and out of many archetypes, many different patterns. We are both the temptress, <laughs> the villain, the clown, the teacher, the mother, the, the comforter, the caretaker. Throughout our life, we um, embody different archetypes, different patterns. But I was so moved that as I came out of lunch, I started deepening my awareness. When am I? And looking at my feelings and reflecting back on, you know, what's going on currently right now with us in a war that everybody is uh, paying attention to. We're trying to understand what can be done and deciding what can I do? And her answer was, I can recognize when I am contributing in any small way to that energy field yes. and change it. That is so important because you don't have to be a fascist to have some time exerted your power over someone else. Mm 
You don't have to be, you know, a villain to have sometimes, you know, to at some point done something mean to someone, or you don't have to be a thief to have sometimes taken your sister's pennies out of her penny jar for ice cream at school. Like that, it doesn't define who you are, but it does give insight to the complexity of being human, of living in these fucking bodies. You know, we embody it all. And I think that that is, that that is a profound truth that if we all kind of knew and worked with, we would live in a very different society globally. In fact, one of the ways that I feel like I'm working to um, working with the energy of this day is every day I have a practice of a daily love drop. And in part, it was inspired by Susanna um, Harwood Rubin, who was our last guest, our final guest of last season, when she said that she likes to start her day with sweetness on her lips. So she does um, a mantra with a mudra practice. And so it brings the first, her first words are of sweetness. Well, I don't know if my first words are of sweetness or my first act is to grab my iPhone and check Facebook, but I do early in the day mostly I have a daily practice now of creating a meme that has original text of love to put into the world. And it, it feels like, it feels significant in its very small gesture. I've also adopted a morning practice that's strengthened after hearing Susanna, episode 10, season one. Um, and it was a mantra mudra practice. I was fascinated at the beauty and grace watching her movements in some of her social, so you can find her on social, of creating this dance of mudras. And I had begun a mantra practice with Deva Pramal and Mitten. They had offered a 21-day practice some time ago. And I found that my book, uh, that I had on mudras written by Joseph and Lillian LePage had a series of mudras that matched the first mantra that they used. So I got out my cards, I laid them all out on the bed, and I began practicing dancing and pu putting them together. Um, and it's interesting because some of it is seamless. It just flows without me having to pay attention to it. The, the mantra words flow with ease not enough for me to sing them without her help. Um, but I'm getting there. I'm practicing day after day after day to make them embodied so that I can call upon them whenever I need them. And the places that I trip over my hand gesture, the wording. So yesterday I was out on our bench, Sherry, out in the middle on, on the <laughs> nature trail here at the farm. And I stopped and I, and I had my my iPhone with me, of course. And I sat down on the bench and said, I'm going to play this and do my hand gestures. I know my mudras by now. So I'll just let her cue me with her beautiful, her beautiful voice. And every single time I repeated it six times, every single time I missed one mudra and it was the same mudra. And I sat there and I was like, I cannot remember what mudra I'm missing. And I counted them and I was like, yeah, it's missing. And it was the mudra for personal power, prana and vitality. And I thought, well, that's pretty telling. Now I know what I have to work on. Wow. So maybe I wasn't embodying my own personal vitality, my like really holding on to my prana, protecting it, holding on to my energy. And I can take this, Fascia is our, an energy storage system that prepares us for movement and action. And I was not embracing that energy, or at least that's the message I took out of, why do I keep forgetting the same mudra over and over again? Well, so if that's the message you got, then that's the message that it is. Yeah. Um, looking at some of this Google search that we've done on archetypes, there was one that had a series of images of the same archetype, and it was a female archetype from different cultures. And I'm forgetting now what it's what it was, but it was a strong woman, and they showed the different um, depictions of this image from the different cultures. And the practice was to look at each image and notice what you feel in your body. And so I did that, and I started feeling a powerful energy within my body. 
And I started thinking, I've been fascinated with tarot cards for my entire life. I would do the readings, but I always need the book. So I was always searching for ways to be able to look at the cards and see, recognize what the message was. You know, what is the card saying? I don't want to have to look in the book. So my friend Emily had done a workshop and she said, whatever you're getting is what you're supposed to get. Like, don't overthink it. Just feel what you feel and see what you see. Like we said, our eye, you've said it, what we see is not an accident when when we're looking at it. So this made me think of that. I thought, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not supposed to be looking to external forces to teach me how to, to feel. They can guide me and say, you can do this, you can do that. But ultimately, it is up to me to either feel it and see it or not. And so I'm using that experience now with my cards. I have oracle cards and tarot cards and, and just seeing what arises and taking the messages that I, that I'm taking without overthinking it and without, and I know my story. So if it resonates and I feel like, oh, this is what it's telling me, even if that's not, there is no empirical data here. You know, it's all what we are receiving and the archetypes are huge in that. You go to cards and use them for your inspiration. I have a funny little habit of my own. If I'm struggling with something, I'm thinking, I can't find direction. I will be thinking and saying, "Ah, I don't really have any real great direction on whatever this problem or thought or challenge that I'm trying to work through. And I, I, like most other people, probably have thousands of songs in my iTunes library. And I will take out my phone. I will open up the library. I'll look at my phone and talk to it and say, okay, this is what we're thinking about. And this is what I'm working with. Tell me a story. And I'll push random play and listen to the first three, three songs that come up. And whatever I take out of those three songs, whatever message I gleam out of them, I take it as a message. (laughs) Sometimes I'll be driving when it happens. You know, I'll be driving and I'll think, I just don't know what to do with this thing. I don't know what direction to go in. And I'll do something very similar. I'm just going to start paying attention to words that I see along the road. They can be advertisements on trucks or billboards along the road, because there's so many of them that we don't pay attention to all of that. But I will remind myself, notice what you notice and what what are you going to, what does it mean to you? And it doesn't matter what it meant. It only matters that I noticed it. And then it helps me to direct my thoughts. And then to draw that into this theme, patterns will emerge, Mm -hmm. you know, the patterns of what you see. So they, you know, my friend who is a psychic medium will say that, you know, the universe communicates to us through numbers and through signs, literal signs on the road, through the things that catch our eye. So if we can begin to see the patterns in what we're seeing, then that can provide a peephole into what maybe we can work with in that particular, you know, you were saying specifically about a situation that you might want to be resolving or direction you might want to be going. So like I would be asking the cards a specific question. So if you're asking that, seeing the patterns to be able to then work with it and get yourself on the road to where you're going. And you're on the road already. So literally. <laughs> I am already driving. Yes. We are, we are almost at an hour of us just talking and we haven't gotten to our practices yet. So I yes. think now is a good time to go into practices. Would you like to go first? Absolutely. I will go first with our practice today. It's a simple and powerful practice. I have begun a a program with Dr. David Hamilton, and you can find him, drdavidhamilton.com. And, you know, we all have something that we will offer in exchange for your email address and being part of a community, right? You want to be part of a community. So there is an offering um, that he gives, and it's a course called Be Kind. And I won't, I don't have the time to go into everything about him and why 
I chose to listen to him. I can tell you one thing before I start my practice. He's a, he's a Scot. Um, he's from Scotland. He lives in Scotland. He's scientifically grounded. And he sounded like my grandfather. So in archetypes and patterns, my grandfather is a man in my life who was always kind. And I always felt his love when I was in his presence. And he sat next to me when he visited at our house and said, Asinessa you? <laughs> and so when I started listening to him, he just reminded me of it. So I was like, I just want to, it just set my whole mindset up to be receptive. So I'm going to share with you a practice that he shares in this course. And, you know, if it resonates with you, go to his website because I'm finding it brilliant and um, a great adjunct to this journey of embodiment and understanding. Now, my, I'm not going to use any numbers for uh, this research because I don't remember them. <laughs> So I will offer this practice in the way that he offered it to me. For the next week, don't change anything you do. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to change your life in any way. You don't have to adopt any specific practice except one. And that is becoming more aware. Noticing every time you have an act of kindness. Any shared with us. It doesn't have to be a big act of kindness. It can be holding a door, preparing a meal for your family, calling a friend that you know might need a little boost that day, smiling at a stranger. Simple acts of kindness. And to become aware of those acts of kindness and keep a little journal. This is the action that goes behind it. Once or twice a day, just take out a piece of paper, your journal, and write down those kindnesses that you um, performed in the day. His research study, or the research study he was citing, said that 100% of the participants reported that they felt happier at the end of the week, that they felt lighter and happier. And they purely by building an awareness and a recognition that they were kind people. And sometimes we're too busy to notice that. So that's my practice. I started yesterday and began to realize that there are many things I do in my life in one day that are kind. And offering of myself and in service and it seemed like such a simple practice to enhance happiness, right. being kind. Oh, so that's my practice. Write down and become aware. That is really beautiful, Teresa. Oh, so nice and so important. Because, you know, it can go by. If they're so small, you hold a door, you forget that you've done that. But that is just part of the day. And that's beautiful. Um, for my practice, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more involved, just a little bit. So um, I said before I had written down a list of archetypes that I felt resonated with me. Now they're very personal and I'm gonna share them with you because um, this is part of the practice. I'm gonna ask you to, if, you, if you're feeling up to it, grab a piece of paper and it doesn't have to be this minute, but begin to think about the archetypes, the, the patterns, what is it that they, going back to Celtic embodiment archetype, from the ancient Greek means original pattern from which copies are made. So the things that you see resurfacing, the, the cyclical characteristics that come up. So I have the jester and the clown I mentioned before, the nurturer, the mother, an intellectual, which I don't necessarily always feel, but I, I, it's, it's in there. Seeker on the spiritual path, teacher, temptress, networker, matchmaker. I like to bring people together. And sometimes I'm the fool. I'm absolutely the fool, the number zero in the tarot card where just everything is, is fresh. I'm the scribe slash poet. I'm a caregiver. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a performer, an MC, jokesta. So these are some of the things that I had written down and I'm sure I could write down more. So the first step is to identify 
some of your own archetypes. And then the practice itself after that, like that's the first part of the practice. I extrapolated from a book that actually inspired this season, just called Myth and the Body. If this gets put up on um, the video, I'm holding up the book. And it's a conversation between Stanley Kellerman and Joseph Campbell. Um, it will be no surprise, Myth and the Body. So they have a whole five-step uh, bodying practice. And while I didn't stay true to their actual practice, I used their guidelines to guide this. So the first thing, once you've identified these archetypes, pick one, just pick one. And it may be easier to pick after you hear what you're going to do. You're going to find yourself in a neutral seat or a standing position. So either stand or stay seated, depending on your physical ability right now, and be in a neutral space. So nothing, nothing big, you're just sitting and noticing, noticing your physical body. And if you're doing this later, you can always come back to this. So you're observing, what does your body feel like? And then slowly, my Gen Xers, we're gonna strike a pose. So remember Madonna, she was striking a pose. You're gonna strike a pose. Now, first I'm gonna start with, if you're not a yogi, then you're going to find some shape that feels like an embodiment of that archetype. You're gonna sit or stand or balance on one foot. That is the feeling that you associate with that archetype. There is no right or wrong, like there is no right or wrong looking at the tarot card, the Oracle card, whatever it, it informs you, be in that moment. If you're a yogi, maybe you're in warrior or dancer or eagle or crow, child's pose, mountain, goddess, dog, sphinx, tree. There are, I don't know how many asanas there are, but the ones that are the English names I'll use because we're not in a yoga class and, you know, the Sanskrit may not speak to you as much as the English since English is our language here. So pick one of those. I, and, you know, I'm not saying English is our language here, but it is the language that we're using instead of Sanskrit for this purpose. So sit in that pose, be in that pose. And be in it long enough to be able to witness, to be able to observe what it is your body is feeling when you associate that shape with that archetype and breathe into that. So that's the next step. You've chosen your archetype. You've picked a shape. It could be a balance pose. It could be, a, it could be in child's pose. You could be in any shape, seated or standing or balancing. You observe. And then the next step is to exaggerate the pose. So make it bigger, maybe bring some facial expression into it, exaggerate wherever you are, and then pause and notice. Notice what you're feeling. Notice what's happening in your physical body. And then the next instruction is to begin to disentangle, come back slowly, move out of the exaggerated pose into the first pose and move through that pose almost like a lyric, like you're just kind of moving a vinyasa flow. You're moving from one to the next. Move from the exaggerated pose into the pose itself and then back into neutral. Take your seat, take your stand, wherever you are, be in that neutral space and observe. The observation from the first, maybe you take like a Polaroid picture of what that was, so that when you get to the final observation, you have an opportunity to witness what has changed, what has shifted. If anything, it could be very slight, it could be big, 